Welcome back to Trust Me with Rachel Parker. This is Rachel Parker. Thank you for joining me this week. Uh, Just as a reminder, we are completely listener supported. And there's lots of things that you can do to help with that. You can go to our homepage, heartlandpod.com, to learn more about becoming a Patreon member. It'd be great if you could leave a review wherever you personally listen to podcasts. You could subscribe to our feed on YouTube. You could subscribe to our feed on Apple Podcasts and so on and so forth. We're, uh, if you're listening to this, you probably already realize that we are anywhere that you listen to podcasts. And just a plug for some stuff that we have go- coming up. I know maybe you've heard us talk about this on the Monday show. We have some events coming up, I think, that are going to be super cool. We are launching a new online community. Um, we'll get more specific when it's actually live because we're going to be rolling it out to our Patreon subscribers who are going to kind of help test, stress test it for us and let us know what, uh, what else they would like to see. Um, but, uh, also because we're, we're not quite ready yet. So I, I hate to talk about things before they are a reality, but we're coming, we're coming up on the day where that's no longer going to be true. We're meaning it's actually going to be a thing that is in the existence of the world. I'm so excited. Switching gears. Back to the show. I hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving. It's always wonderful when you can um, just kind of sit across the table from people who you really care about and eat obscene amounts of food or however it was that you decided that you wanted to celebrate. I hope that you enjoyed it. Um, This is a recording that I made before the holidays. I have long been wanting to sit down with uh, a journalist from Iowa named Laura Bellin. And she is the editor of a site called Bleeding Heartland. And she specifically covers uh, issues that come out of Iowa. But if you listen to this show, if you listen to our Monday shows, if you listen to our uh, kind of flyover vibes, um, the things that Laura talks about are going to be pretty similar to some of the things that we talk about, which is why I really wanted to talk to her. And Laura, speaking of listener-supported and reader-supported media, does something that I wish more journalists would do, which is to just, she just does her own thing. Um, it's not easy, but she doesn't take any money in adverti- from advertisers. And she also doesn't put any of her content behind a paywall. Uh, we certainly will be doing that. And I don't want to, I don't want to suggest there's a good or a bad way, but she's managed to keep this site up and running um, without uh, taking any penny f- pennies from advertisers, which I think is just so crucial. And also the quality of the work is excellent. Uh, I think Laura covers a wide range of topics uh, about Iowa. And then she also has a number of uh, guest commentators. You're going to hear us talk about that too. But this particular con- discussion is really about the school board races that just happened this past, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, earlier earlier in November. And um, we talked about this about a, a bit on the Monday show, that these school board races that looked like they were going to go to really extreme candidates, they didn't quite work out that way. Um, and so she wrote a, what I thought was a particularly smart substack. You can find that in the show notes. And I don't want to give too much away. I'm going to let Laura speak for herself. So without any further ado, here is my interview with Bleeding Heartland's Laura Bellin. All right. So as discussed, uh, sitting, I'm sitting across from Laura Bellin, who is the editor of Bleeding Heartland. And I know, Laura, you're not feeling so super hot this morning. So thank you so much for 
for joining me. Um, I say this morning, it's one o'clock in the afternoon. I don't know why I did that. We were talking, actually, it's funny, before we hit, we hit record, we were talking about how writers are disgusting cave trolls who like live in, uh, in, in homes that know no time or space and like, we never bathe. We're like, is it 4 p.m.? And I haven't brushed my teeth yet. Um, so uh, thank you for joining me this afternoon and for the lovely discussion beforehand. So what I would love for you to do first is just talk about yourself, talk about Bleeding Heartland, how you came to be uh, a part of the organization and kind of a little bit about your mission and what you guys do. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, I'm I'm a night owl. So if, if I could just have a natural schedule, I'd probably be up writing until 4 a.m. and then sleeping until 10 or 11 a.m. But in any case, I, I really appreciate the invitation. Bleeding Heartland is a community blog focused on Iowa politics. It is has been around since 2007. There was a real heyday in the mid-2000s and creating state-based community blogs that were all modeled on Daily Coast, or if you remember MyDD, which is now defunct. And there actually used to be a whole 50-state network, blog network of these progressive community state-based blogs. And the two guys who were in college at the time, Drew Miller and Chris Woods, they started Bleeding Heartland. They launched in January 2007. And I think I was registered user number nine because I had been following both of their blogs prior to that. I'd been an active participant in Daily Coast and MyDD and Open Left, Swing State Project, all of those websites. And so I was interested in it. And uh, Drew Miller then graduated from Iowa State and quickly got a job with the Iowa Democratic Party that didn't allow for outside blogging. So without knowing anything about me, I actually have a professional writing background. I used to cover Russian politics early in my career, and I drifted away from that after Vladimir Putin. A lot of things changed, and the beats I used to cover in Russia became not that interesting to cover. So he didn't know anything about that. He just knew that I was an active commenter and occasional poster on Bleeding Heartland. So he asked me if I would write on the front page. So I've been a front pager at the site since 2007. I've been the primary author on the site since 2008 and the sole editor. But I publish work by more than 100 different authors every year, and I'm really proud to provide a platform for a diverse range of views along that democratic or progressive uh, span. It doesn't actually, you don't have to be a Democrat. It's certainly the blog's not affiliated with the Democratic Party in any way. And, and I also publish criticism of democratic policies or politicians when warranted or when I, I get a substantive submission by a guest author. Yeah, I so the second that I followed your Substack, which we're going to talk about in a second, um, I got a ton of recommendations from like similar Substacks you might like, and just a ton of them were in Iowa. Um, so where is it that you think that I, and I, I wish I could say the same, and I don't, I'm not trying to, to besmirch like Missouri or anything, but I live here and I can tell you that, that that is not true of Missouri yet. Maybe, maybe people will be inspired. Um, there certainly are a fair amount of people I think who love to write in Missouri, but I have not, I, nothing like that has ever, I've never seen anything like that. Where do you think that comes from in Iowa? Like, what do you attribute <laughs> that to? That there's something called the Iowa Writers Collaborative on Substack, and it is unique. And I can say that it is unique because we actually had a meeting with Substack executives, and they confirmed that there is nothing like this existing in any other state. One of our authors, Julie Gamick, she used to work for the Des Moines Register early in her career, 
And she became distressed a few years ago at the lack of commentary, the decline of opinion pages in the register and in many other newspapers around the state. And she had started her own Substack newsletter, I think in 2020 during the pandemic. And then she got this idea in 2022 that we should have this network of Substack newsletters that could provide commentary on all kinds of things. And mine is focused on politics. It's called Iowa Politics with Laura Bellin. But many of them are focused on other things, cultural commentary. We even have some authors looking at sports, history, stories, interesting uh, stories, or some focus on certain issues, like let's say the mental health situation in Iowa. And so Julie spearheaded this thing. We now have about three dozen authors, I think, who are part of the Iowa Writers Collaborative. And so there's a weekly roundup. It's free on Sunday mornings that links to everything in all the newsletters. And all of the authors provide content for free. And, and most of us, I think, also have paid subscription options. But for me, all of my content is available to free subscribers. And so a paid subscription is only voluntary for people who want to do that. But that's why, and the Substack executives were very interested in this because they hadn't seen this kind of a network of Substack authors supporting each other. And also we've made all of that content available through the Iowa Writers Collaborative. It can be republished by Iowa newspapers, which are really starving for content. They've cut back on newsroom staff. And a lot of times when it comes to commentary in an Iowa newspaper, it'll be like the weekly newsletter from the Republican state legislators, the sure. Republicans of Congress, and they really don't have any progressive viewpoints. Not that everybody in the Writers Collaborative is writing from a progressive perspective, but it's just an example of content. And there have been some newspapers that picked up my posts. Also, our state's newsroom, a branch, which is called Iowa Capital Dispatch, and they do great work. They occasionally publish articles from the Iowa Writers Collaborative members, including myself. So that reaches a wider audience. And it's, it's just a way to get some more diverse viewpoints out there. As you said, I mean, news deserts are a really big problem. And Iowa still has, compared to other states, I'm told, Iowa still has a fairly healthy number of newspapers, but it's shrinking every year. Yeah, we were, so before we hit record, Laura and I were chatting about, um, I'm saying this to the listeners, that Laura and I were chatting a little bit about how this, there's this real problem of, um, just sort of stagnation of information uh, in, in, in kind of the full site broadly, like the heartland of the flyover region. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. But one that I come back to a lot and, you know, I'll say this and then I, I want to talk about your Substack that you specifically wrote about the, some Iowa school board races, which I think are super interesting is that normally what I've seen in kind of the journalism space writ large is that, and I've, I've been, not a professional journalist in my life, but I have sat next to or been adjacent to sort of media and journalism for 20 plus years uh, professionally. And there is a general, I would say, almost allergy to uh, entrepreneurial creativity in journalism. And I think that, that the, the era that you're talking about is an example of things kind of started to improve. And I feel like social came, social media came along and sort of cut the head off of what was going to become, I think, a really burgeoning and interesting space. Like you can look at, I don't know, the Huffington Post and BuzzFeed as examples of like um, what looked like good ideas on paper that ended up going really south because of, you know, various economic factors, mostly from like Facebook, for example. Um, but I just wanted to say, like, it's really encouraging to see that there is a group of 
uh, writers and collaborators in a, a state that people don't often associate with on either entrepreneurs or writers, even though uh, the, you know, Iowa is home to what is arguably the most like prestigious MFA writing program in the country um, mm-hmm. that there. And I mean, the uh, Mizzou, University of Missouri is still one of the most prestigious um, co- journalism schools in uh, the country. And it doesn't produce journalists that who stay here either. So um, right. it's just really exciting, frankly, to hear that there are models that maybe, you know, aren't going to necessarily make anybody a, a ton of money, but journalism's never made people a ton of money. Um, hate yeah. to be the, whether it was publishers or individual writers, uh, it's never been a lucrative uh, business. So I do want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about um, these, these elections that we just had and um, how, if I were a member of Moms for Liberty, I might be a, a, a little bit disappointed and um, wondering about where where I had gone wrong. So, first of all, um, and we're talking about uh, a Substack that you wrote: "Progressives win, book banners lose, many Iowa school board races." So that's Laura's Substack from November eighth, so the day after the elections. And I wanted to kind of dive into this a little bit, and from the lens of the results of these school board races. And the terrible night that groups like Moms for Liberty had. Why don't we talk broadly about um, the lens of these races and um, what it looks like in the future for some of these groups on the ground in Iowa from your perspective? Yeah, I want to give people a little bit of context on what's been happening in Iowa politics and Iowa schools in the last couple of years. So we had, as you saw in many other states, There were a lot of conflicts during the pandemic over school closures. Our governor was one of the first to force schools to reopen for in-person instruction. Also, she pushed the Iowa legislature to pass a law saying schools could not require masks. And that generated a lot of conservative activism to try to get involved in school board races. And in Iowa, we have school board races every two years and they're in the off years, the odd numbered years. So in 2021, there were a lot of conservative candidates. I don't know how many officially were affiliated with Moms for Liberty, but they were many were the same kind of people who are now Moms for Liberty activists. Turning Point, I think also had some candidates here. And it was a mixed bag, the election. So some of the school districts, like I live in a suburban area of Des Moines, our school district elected all mainstream, I would call teachers union backed or or progressive, generally speaking, candidates. But then there were other school districts nearby that elected a slate of conservative candidates. And then Iowa in 2022 was one of the states like where they say the country didn't have the red wave. Actually, Iowa was a state where we did have the red wave. So the Republican majorities in the Iowa legislature greatly increased and our governor was able to get a huge number of bills passed this year relating to public education that were very controversial. So one of them, a school voucher plan, and one of them uh, uh, relating to, it was actually really broad, but relating to banning books with certain kinds of content, like a don't say gay trans for grades K through six, modeled on a lot of the bad ideas that you're seeing in other states. And so this year's school board elections were really important because they were like a referendum on what the Republican agenda for Iowa schools is, and is this something that Iowa peep that regular Iowans support? And during when a lot of these bills were being considered, the comments at the public hearings and the com- the written comments to legislators were overwhelmingly against things like the school voucher plan, 
but they went forward anyway. And the governor said, look, I have a mandate. I got elected by this huge margin. So it was really interesting to me by about 10 or 11 PM, it was very clear to me on election night, wow, this is not just something happening in a few suburban school districts around Des Moines, but everywhere, even in a lot of smaller towns or communities, older working class communities, places like Mason City, Council Bluffs that you don't really consider super progressive, we still had the progressive slates running the table in these school board elections and the conservative candidates losing. And I think that is, I mean, I don't know how to read that other than as a repudiation of the Republican agenda. And the other thing I wanted to mention briefly was that there was a referendum in the town of Pella. This is a Dutch predominantly town. It's one of the most notoriously conservative towns in Iowa. I mean, it's just like synonymous with conservative. And some local people had tried to get the book Gender Queer out of the public library, not the school, the public library. It was in the adult section. The public library board rejected their appeal to remove the book. And so they arranged to have this ballot initiative that would give the Pella City Council the authority to overrule the public library board. And this failed in a, in a town of Pella. I mean, this is a place that votes absolutely overwhelmingly for Republican candidates. And turnout was high. So, I mean, clearly, even among a lot of people who consider themselves conservatives or moderates, there's not a lot of appetite for this book banning agenda. I mean, I'll say that speaking of like how I, we, we talk a lot about how these um, these let these these bills that get introduced in state legislatures are basically just like carbon copies of each other are, are quite literal like cut and paste versions of each other um and so I, I think iowa's legislative session and missouri's legislative session are extreme were extremely similar uh in the in the past two years uh especially this past this past session um i mean one of our gubernatorial candidates on the gop side hosted a rally where he took a blowtorch to a pile of books wow so it's kind of hard to be like book burning. Okay. Like, but he said that that wasn't, by the way, like he then had the temerity the next day to be like, Oh, I'm not advocating for book burning or like, okay, you're so subtle. We understand there's so much nuance to what you're trying to do, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about, and you just kind of said this a, a little bit. So this is going to be a little bit redundant, but I love the way that you put this in your Substack. The results are rebuke. To, to Governor Kim Reynolds and Iowa's Republican-controlled legislature. Um, let's go ahead and unpack that. So you already mentioned the turnout was reasonably high um, this election cycle. What has Governor Reynolds said, and how do you think that she's going to respond as you know we kind of gear up for the next legislative cycle? Well, I haven't seen any public comments from her. Of course, I emailed her office the morning after the election to try to find out if she had any comment on how they interpret the results. Didn't hear back. Also, uh, one of our members of Congress, Ashley Hinson, along with the governor, had really gone all in demonizing a school district that's in the suburbs of Cedar Rapids, Linmar. And this had become the target for conservatives because of their policy to support transgender students. And it was always kind of odd because Linmar's policy wasn't really that different from probably two dozen other Iowa school districts had very similar policies, but somehow Linmar became the target of conservatives, some very ugly threats made against the school board members. And it was it was one of the districts where, again, the progressives ran the table. And I also asked Ashley Hinson, this member of Congress, whose own children go to Linmar, well, like, what do you think? Doesn't this show that the, the actual residents of the Linmar School District don't share your concerns? Never heard back. I did see the Des Moines Register had an article a few days after the election that talked about the results. And I thought this was kind of funny that they had some 
some Republicans were quoted as saying, well, look, you know, the Republican voters were just distracted by the presidential campaigns. And there's this really active Iowa caucus campaign and presidential candidates. And it just meant that there wasn't a lot of attention on the school board races, which I think is almost like the opposite of the truth, because what the reality is that when you have a lot of presidential candidates pounding the pavement and going around and holding fundraisers for your local group, that actually is a benefit to all of your down ballot candidates for everything. I mean, it's not, it's, it shouldn't be something that distracts voters from participating. And they definitely had more candidates register for these school board races. So I thought that was a little bit weak. And then there was another, a, a member of the legislature who was one of the people who guided, he was a floor manager for some of these education bills. And he said, well, basically like we already accomplished we already did a lot of these things. So people didn't feel the need to go out and vote for this because we've already enacted into the law, you know, some of what let's say the Moms for Liberty candidates would have wanted, the book restrictions, the restrictions on curriculum relating to sexual orientation or gender identity and those things that are already in the coat now. So they didn't really need to show up. But I mean, I think that's fairly weak. And I also want to say that there there were there was a, a carbon copy aspect to a lot of the Iowa legislature's work, like the ban on gender affirming care for minors, the bathroom bill that they passed, that these had been bills that were introduced year after year and never went anywhere. And then all of a sudden this year, the governor endorsed the idea and it, and it became law within a month or two. But there were also things that I think were unique to Iowa. I mean, some really odd things that were part of the Moms for Liberty agenda. One of them was that they removed from the Iowa code, the requirement that the middle school and high school sex ed curriculum cover HPV and the vaccine that prevents HPV. This is like one of those weird overlaps between some of these I, people. I want to say that there, I don't remember if it was on a, on a legislative level, but I'm going to say there were Missouri lawmakers that were like, we should be taking a look at this HPV vaccine. Yeah. Because, because... It, it's an old, it's an old Christian, it's an old conservative fundamentalist Christian chestnut that like, if you protect people from a sexually transmitted disease, they will have a ton of sex and get right. pregnant. And I mean, Iowa has the second highest cancer rate in the country. And I think we're the only state that has a, a, a statistically significant increase in the cancer rate. So it seems like a really odd time to remove HPV from the mandatory curriculum. Now that won't affect every school district. For instance, my kids went through the Des Moines public schools. They're going to keep that in there. It doesn't ban HPV from the curriculum, but it says it's not required. And so you know what's going to happen that in a lot of the conservative areas of the state, just to avoid the blowback, those are the places where it's going to be removed from the curriculum. I'm actually trying to get, I have a records request right now. I'm trying to get data to try to find out where it has been removed. But so that's going to adversely affect a lot of students who just aren't going to get that information and probably won't get it from at home either. And they may not have health care. Like that's the other, that's always like the fun uh, side dish that um, the, I'll, I'll say like arch conservative um, evangelical lawmakers don't particularly want to acknowledge is that they're going to lead to the potential death and severe illness of children that don't have access to healthcare because they won't fund healthcare either. Right. Um, so when we're talking about, again, you kind of um, have alluded to a lot of this or if not said it outright, but I do want to kind of talk about this more explicitly. I I'm, I'm with you. This, this idea that that these Republicans that you reached out to have said like, oh, well, people didn't vote the our way, quote unquote, because 
you know, they're just confused or because like we've been so successful in our other agendas that like, well, they just didn't feel the need to like show up at the polls, which is like, is true. Exactly. Zero percent of the time. Right. Um, so I want to talk about again, how do you think the extremist nature of these school board races, which are happening all over the country, they're not unique to Missouri. They're not unique to Iowa. They are, they, they tend to happen more in, you know, conservative, we'll say like bellwether states, but you know, they had these problems in California. They've had these problems in Washington state. They've had these problems in Oregon. They've had them everywhere. How much do you think that the just kind of absurd nature of the messaging that surrounds groups like turning point USA moms for Liberty, et cetera. How much do you think that actually motivates people to come to the polls? I think it did. I mean, we don't have the final turnout data for these elections yet, but just eyeballing the numbers in a number of districts, it, it did look like turnout was high. I think there were a couple of factors that were important. We saw more organizing. I mean, Iowa school board races are technically nonpartisan and they used to be truly nonpartisan and they've become much less so the last few cycles. So we have what you see now is you have these informal slates, like if there are three seats up you'll have six candidates and three are clearly the progressive slate or the teachers union back slate and three are the conservative slate. And so that allows people to organize much more effectively than if you have all of these candidates running their own individual campaigns. And I, I feel that that is, um, I think that that was a factor. I also just think that there was a, a real sense of overreach with what the legislature did and with, and particularly when it comes to the the book banning angle. And there were a lot of stories in the last few months that some school districts had removed classic works of literature, things like 1984 works by James Joyce, because they have a reference to, to a sex act, which the code says is not allowable in a school library or classroom. And I, I heard the LGBTQ advocacy group, One Iowa Action, they actually got involved in the school board races this year for the first time ever in the history of their organization because there were so many anti-LGBTQ laws passed this year that they thought it's very important to have sympathetic people on school boards, which are going to be interpreting or, or administering how these laws function. And I, I heard their political director was on a panel last month, and he said that their candidates, when they were going around knocking on doors, like a common thing that people would say when they would open the door and the person would introduce themselves as a school board candidate is they would say, you're not one of those book banners, are you? Or And so there just was a very negative reaction that wasn't seen, you know, Iowans don't, I mean, there was a small vocal minority who felt that schools were pushing this kind of agenda on kids, but most people realize, I mean, schools were never pressuring students to change their gender or align with a different gender. And this just wasn't a problem. I heard even from some, some people, some superintendents or people involved with school districts in smaller towns, they had students who were using the bathroom that aligned with their gender identity. It wasn't an issue in their school. It honestly didn't need to become a big political football for people. It wasn't causing a problem. And then it became this big divisive thing. And I think, I mean, there were, as I mentioned, you know, there were even some small school districts where the conservative candidates were rejected. And these are areas that have, that elect Republicans to the legislature by pretty wide margins. So that's why I feel like it was a specific statement about the agenda for schools. And I don't know that this is going to extrapolate into people voting against Republicans next year when they have a chance to vote for candidates for state or federal offices. 
So I'm curious how you think this is this because uh, I'd love to talk more talking. And thank you. That was that was beautifully said. We're going to have to have you uh, back again, Laura. You're making my job incredibly <laughs> easy um, and I'm very lazy. So it's wonderful uh, to have someone who can um, be so wonderfully clarifying on these issues that we talk about a lot, especially Jess Piper on her show, or Democrat talks about education all the time. She herself is a retired educator and um you know my personal belief was that when this all started to happen i was like i don't think people people look at aspects of politics from more complicated lenses than we give them credit for and i think that uh you know they'll vote for the team in some races because they just don't know any better they don't pay attention it's not something that they don't feel like immediately affects them their member of congress who represents them in their capital they they probably don't most people don't even really know often who it is that represents them in um here in jefferson city uh it, for example but school boards are very that's a different that's a horse of a different color right like I'm, I'm not saying that they can name the members of their school board by name but they may know them right they're people that they have to walk down the street with and they kind of i think I- I instinctively sort of know and understand that and one of the things that I love to talk about, aside from just this kind of like, aside from the sort of like red blue binary, is where things come down in terms of uh, demographics of of age. So in Iowa, do you see that there is a younger cohort that may have impacted these races in a certain way? Do you think that younger cohort may? Uh, I mean, I know that that you know the Midwest in general is in short supply of young people because they tend to leave and not come back. But how do you think that's affecting things on the ground there? I would have to look at the turnout report, but generally speaking, the Iowa electorate is really old. Like the vast majority of people who vote in Iowa elections are over 50. And I think that's even more the case for city and school board elections. So I don't imagine that in many of these districts, there was a groundswell of the youth vote, but it could be that in some communities, uh, certainly in college towns, that could be the case. I wanted to mention one other thing uh, briefly, which is that Republicans in 2019, they used their trifecta to change the law so that school board elections would coincide with city elections. And the idea was that they thought that that would decrease the teachers union influence because we used to have school board races in September and they were always very low turnout. And that has not been the result. So, I mean, they had some limited success in 2021. And I think they may have overplayed their hand, assuming that people were really on board from their agenda. But I wanted to mention one other thing about these school board races that is it it I think it's similar to what you saw in Ohio last week with the abortion referendum, that when people have a chance to vote up or down on a specific issue, then it might be a different result from what you would see if they were just voting based on their partisanship. And I know I write a lot about reproductive rights. That's also a very important issue for my readers and for myself personally as a third generation Planned Parenthood supporter in Iowa. But when you you see, and, and it was true in Kansas, it was true in Kentucky, a lot of people who align with Republicans who normally vote for Republican candidates are voting for the pro-choice position on these abortion referendums. And I think that that may have been happening Certainly in the in the suburban areas where there are a lot of moderate Republicans still, and in Pella, as I mentioned, this very conservative town where they voted down this library referendum. So, I mean, I, I think that, but it, it does make it hard to say, well, does this mean that there's going to be a groundswell that's going to change things next year? I think we would really need to see a lot more because next year people are going to be voting on all kinds of different issues, not only on how they feel about the public education agenda. 
so I'd like to ask this question for uh, to a lot of people who do or, or who are you know deeply knowledgeable um, and aware of uh, things that are going on on the ground um, in our region. And one issue that I of those issues that I like to talk about a little bit is like how do we because I think you to have a pluralistic society you need a diversity of thought in all aspects of life and that's certainly true when you when it comes to lawmakers and um executives like the president of the united states and governors and mayors and so forth and the way that it's kind of gone is that in america if there is a large metropolitan area where the population is greater than the rural areas they elect statewide democrats and in the conditions where that's not the case um, they elect statewide Republicans and Republicans in the states have done a very good job of gerrymandering the state, uh, the, the the House seats and the Senate seats such that, like, it's so difficult for a, a Democrat to have any chance of hell of, of winning any of those spots. Do you think that in particularly, we'll just say we'll, we'll keep it in Iowa, if you were to say to those people, OK, look, we're not we're doing away with sort of these partisan primaries and instead we're going to have open primaries where we have a ranked choice voting system or like they have in um, Alaska or you have like an approval voting system like we now have in the city of St. Louis. Do you think that that would at least force people to be more considerate about, you know, do you think that you in other words, do you think that you would see that sort of vote for an up down issue it, kind of have that bleed over into how they're voting for uh, political candidates? That's an interesting question. I have to say, first of all, <laughs> I want to clarify, it's like good news and bad news. Iowa doesn't have gerrymandering. So the absolute Republican dominance of the Iowa legislature right now is not related to gerrymandering. So, I mean, the good news is that if things start to swing in some of these smaller communities, the Democrats are not going to be locked out of these seats. But the bad news is that that is how much the vote has shifted in a lot of smaller towns or what I call mid-sized cities. So cities with populations between 10,000 and 40,000, let's say, and we have a lot of those in Iowa. Those are the places where Democrats have just cratered in the last 10 or 15 years, and it's cost us a, the legislative majority. So in any case, in, in a lot of these, in the majority of the legislative districts, the Republican primary might as well be the general election, right? Because the Democrat is going to have no chance. So that's an interesting idea of a primary. I just haven't, I mean, Iowa Republicans aren't that open to innovation, so I can't really imagine them in, in interested in something like Alaska, which has led to almost a power sharing agreement in their legislature. But I do think that would be interesting. And I I feel that there are a lot of moderate Republicans who are, I mean, their voices are shut out. There are there may be as many as 20, 25% of Republican voters who are pro-choice. And there there has not been a pro-choice Republican legislator in Iowa since 2008. I mean, the last one in the Iowa House retired in 2008, and the last one in the Iowa Senate lost her 2006 primary. So you could argue that they really have no representation on that issue. But also, I mean, they are still willing to vote Republican on other issues like taxes or you name it. So, but I think that's an interesting question. And I really don't know. I mean, I have to think harder on how that would play out if we had those kind of open primaries. Um, well, that is heartening to know that, like, at least uh, the Republicans haven't gerrymandered um, one Midwestern state beyond recognition. Um, uh, and I'm sure people are going to fly to the work and be like, Rachel, it's also not gerrymandered in Indiana. I don't know. Um, it's certainly uh, it's certainly the, the, the case here. So I guess let's let's talk about kind of 
going forward we already talked about how it seems like or at least nobody's responded to you as far as like how the republicans um have licked their wounds and so is is Randall Remy if Reynolds is up for re-election this cycle or if she was just she was just re-elected no, she correct? was just re-elected by 19 points so she had a really large margin she right, had a that's close right. election in 2018 and then a landslide re-election in 2022 how do you think her popularity is doing these days in light of the fact that Republicans writ large are not faring well have not fared well in the last three cycles we'll say well, I think her popularity really has never been high. If you look at her approval ratings, like so morning depressing. Consult, yeah, morning <laughs> no one, consult. No one ever likes her. Yeah, they they do these fifty state job approval ratings for governors, and she's always been near the bottom on those. And I think part of it is her leadership style from the very beginning was very divisive. She was lucky to come into the governorship with a Republican trifecta already in place. And so she never really had to compromise. I mean, our previous Republican governor, Terry Branstad, definitely not a fan or admirer of his, but most of the time he was governor, at least one chamber of the legislature was controlled by the Democrats. So he was, he had some kind of an ability to like make deals and at least get people together, try to get on the same side of an issue. And so Kim Reynolds has never done that. And and during the pandemic, she was also very divisive with the way she handled things. And so I feel like, I mean, her approval rating has never been really above the low 50s. She did have a landslide win, but that was partly because Democratic turnout was terrible in 2022. And our nominee for governor just wasn't well-funded at all. I mean, the governor was able to outspend her on television like 10 to 1 or something. So it was just a very difficult environment. We also had Senator Chuck Grassley was on the ballot seeking re-election and outspending his opponent. So it was just a difficult environment for Democrats. But I don't think that Kim Reynolds is a is a really imposing figure. I, I do think that she has influence in Republican primaries. She was able to get some of the Republican legislators who had opposed her school voucher plan she endorsed opponents or challengers to them in their 2022 primaries, and most of those candidates lost their 2022 primaries. So she does have influence within her own party, but I don't feel like, I mean, I, I feel like she isn't as popular as she could be if she were just a little bit less divisive. So speaking of divisive and Kim Reynolds, and we'll we'll finish up here because I think like, you know, I, I, I have you in front of me. I have to ask you this question. So- <laughs> Your governor has not endorsed Donald Trump in the Iowa caucuses. She has endorsed Florida governor Ron DeSantis. What impact do you think that's going to have in Iowa? I mean, it's not looking great. I got to say, like, it doesn't look like it's really moved the needle. Why do you think she bothered? I mean, what do you think motivated her to feel like she had, again, she could have said nothing. She could have done what any smart, astute politician would have done and said Zero. Like, I'll give you an example. Like, Cori Bush during the se- the Democratic Senate primary last cycle didn't endorse anybody. She said nothing, which I thought was completely acceptable. Um, right. So what what do you think Reynolds was getting out of it? Is he just a friend of hers? Are they both governors? Like, what got in her head? And do you think that she's going to have to eat a little bit of crow? Because that doesn't look like it's going to really make a difference for him. I think that she... <laughs> I should say, first of all, I agree with you that the smart thing would be to stay neutral. And that is generally what Iowa governors have done, with the exception of, I think, Branstad endorsed Bob Dole in 1996. But very rarely has a governor, a sitting governor endorsed in a primary. And Chuck Grassley also generally hasn't endorsed. I think, I mean, I have been expecting this for a long time. First of all, 
Kim Reynolds clearly takes her cue from Ron DeSantis on a lot of things. I'll never forget in, I believe it was this, the spring of 2021, when there was a Fox News town hall of red state governors. And she was on that along with, I think maybe Tate Reeves, but certainly DeSantis was there. And they were talking about a ban on uh, transgender participation in sports. And all of a sudden she said, I want to sign, I want to sign a bill like that in Iowa. Like DeSantis was bragging about it. And then she said she wanted a bill like that. Well, there had been bills introduced. She had never endorsed that. They'd never gone anywhere. Of course, once she threw her weight behind it, it passed the next year. But you saw it. I mean, DeSantis moved with a don't say gay law. Then she wanted to pass a don't say gay law. So I think she's always been very supportive of what and trying to copy a lot of the things that he does. And then I saw in April, you know, he has this super PAC, Never Back Down, which is basically paying for most of his I, campaign operations. I, sad, I sadly do know a lot about Never Back Down, right. but yeah, yeah. So Never Back Down hired as one of their strategic advisors or whatever his title is in Iowa, Ryan Copemans, who is the former legal counsel and chief of staff for the governor, a very close political advisor to the governor. I think she was paying him like $10,000 a month to to advise her 2022 reelection campaign. So when I saw that he signed on with Never Back Down, I thought, well, it's pretty inevitable. I mean, and she appeared with Casey DeSantis at this rollout for Mamas for DeSantis. So to me, it was always obvious that she had a preference. I wasn't sure whether she was going to make the endorsement official. And actually, I expected it to happen much closer to the actual caucus date of January 15th. That would be ideally the time to do it, to try to build momentum toward the end. I think what influenced the endorsement was this really terrible Des Moines Register poll by Ann Seltzer came out. I mean, terrible for DeSantis, I should say, that showed not only is Trump way ahead, but now DeSantis is no longer the clear second place candidate. He's tied with Nikki Haley. So I think there was a little bit of panic in the DeSantis camp. And that's why the governor came out and endorsed and she is appearing in a new TV ad for him. She's appearing at some events with him around the state. I don't think that Republican voters really care. And I think that it's going to be difficult. I mean, the problem is that DeSantis is trying to be more more like Trump, like Trump without the drama, as they say, but there's no evidence that Republican voters really want Trump without the drama. Like the ones who are done with Trump, a lot of them are supporting Nikki Haley. And then the ones who, you know, kind of like Trump and want to continue on that line are mostly still supporting him. So I, I feel that it could end up being a little embarrassing for her, but she's got to hope that if if somehow if if things turn around and DeSantis ends up being a strong second place, that she'll get a lot of the credit. I think certainly she would get a lot of the credit if that happened because his campaign has just been in a tailspin all year. Yeah, I, I'm enjoying this. It reminds me a little bit of uh, 2022 when Josh Howley in our state quickly endorsed then House member Vicki Hartzler, who was running for Senate in a contested primary uh, against uh, against our attorney general, now junior senator eric schmidt all you're gonna do is make yourself look weak right it's all you're gonna do is make yourself look weak that's all you're gonna do and um yeah he did and i just wanted to mention one last thing on the education that happened since I read that piece about the school board races is that the state board of education 
a pr provisionally adopted administrative rules relating to one of these big education bills, and they decided not to create a master list of books that need to be removed under this guidance that books uh, can't be in a school library that, that depict a sex act. So that creates a lot of issues for school districts, which are going to be on their own. And it means that it's even more important to have these good school board members who are true advocates for public education and not people whose primary agenda is undermining public education. So can that administrative rule, is that an administrative rule? Can it be undone or will it take, will it actually take a, it, a, a, it hasn't, a vote? It hasn't been finalized yet. So they okay. adopted, they put out a notice. I think there's a public comment period now. Uh, then they'll have to, the board will have to vote on it again. And then actually in Iowa, the process, it goes, there's a legislative committee that then reviews administrative rules. So it's far from being final. It would be final sometime early next year. But the school districts had been pushing for more specific guidance from the state on, hey, how do we interpret some of these provisions in the law? And basically the state board said, we don't want to be too specific. Well, we're, well, we're, we're we're doing things that are obviously prejudicial <laughs> obviously are inf infringements upon free speech so we don't want to go on the record as telling you what we want you to do we're just going to take our hands off the wheel and say do whatever you want instead essentially right and they and also at the same time they a lot of the the republican legislators have been complaining that people are exaggerating and they're they're trying to make score political points by removing books that clearly aren't that the law doesn't really apply to. But these questions came up. I mean, I watched the committee hearings and the legislative debates on these bills, and this came up. I mean, what when it says you can't have any instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity in grades K through six. Well, what about a children's book that mentions that some families have two moms or two dads? I mean, is that what about what about Shakespeare? Right. I mean, Romeo yeah, I mean, and Juliet, they get it on, notably. Like they, they Romeo and Juliet sleep together in the play. It happens. Right. Like they and have it, sex. Like right. In 1984. I mean, I guess the question is, is that going to be considered a description of a sex act? Or is that just a reference or an implied sex act? But right. you know, this and this is and this is where we problem. start to get into the weeds that they don't want to own, right? They don't want to own this stuff. And I think that opposed to the point that you were saying before where it's like they've thrown up these issues without really in the in the in the fever of covid which gave them sort of an unprecedented moment to get everybody sort of banded together to attack public schools which is sort of the trojan horse for trying to take apart uh teachers unions and um in that fever what we now have is this sort of hangover period called well but how and they don't have a good answer because they never in their wildest dreams I think thought it was going to work. Um, but maybe, maybe it's not, maybe it's not working. I wanted to mention a, a one thing. Another thing about these proposed administrative rules is they say, as far as books that mention that have LGBTQ characters, it says that neutral mentions are allowed like an observation regarding a book's characters, sexual orientation or so, gender identity. But what is neutral? I mean, I, it could it could be a if it's a positive character like the friend of the protagonist of the book that could be considered neutral or not neutral i mean it's really unclear yeah 
It's always unclear. This is actually one of, I thought, the funniest moments in in a a very unfunny legislative session that was quite distressing to cover, honestly, with all of the attacks on LGBTQ Iowans, the attacks on disabled Iowans, reproductive rights. I mean, you name it, they went after CRT, blah, 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 all of it, yeah. But they, uh, CRT, they already took care of in 2021. But yeah, they, but there, there was just a lot they did this year. But during the debate, one of the Iowa House Democrats who represents the Mason City area, Sharon Steckman, she's a retired fifth grade uh, teacher. And she said when they were discussing this uh, don't say gay, she said, well, okay, like we've passed this bathroom bill, right? That says that you, that students are not allowed to use the bathroom, the facilities that align with their gender identity. They have to use the facilities that align with the sex assigned at birth. And yet you've also told me that I can't have any instruction related to gender identity. So how am I supposed to explain to my student why, you know, Susie can no longer use the girl's bathroom, but has to use the boy's bathroom. How do I explain that without discussing gender identity in the classroom? I mean, it's like, there's just no thought process. It's just punching down on vulnerable kids, honestly. Well, it is extremism, right? Like uh, extremism uh, is never asked to explain itself um, or to be nuanced. So Laura, I want to thank you again so much for your time today. Um, it's, It's always such a joy to talk to um, other people who are trying to just make people on the ground more aware of what's going on um, in a region that most Americans would rather forget exists. Um, so if you could let us know where to find you, uh, these just to remind folks who are listening to this interview, these links will be in the show notes, but I would love for Laura to talk about where we can find you. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. So a Bleeding Heartland is online at www.bleedingheartland.com. All the content is available for free, no paywalls. There is also a Bleeding Heartland Facebook page. I have a Substack newsletter that is also free. That's called Iowa Politics with Laura Bellin. And I am on various platforms, uh, the former Twitter, Blue Sky, Post, Mastodon, at Laura R. Bellin is my handle on all of those. And I always appreciate hearing from readers and I really appreciate the people keeping the faith and working to advance progressive ideas, even in places that have swung really hard to the right. It's just going to take a lot of people working to bring it back. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Trust Me with Rachel Parker is a production of MidMap Media, produced by Rachel Parker, Adam Summer, and Sean Diller with original music composition by Elliot Rosen. 